And welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Hello and welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven and this is the fifth in the series of special podcasts evolving out of the Joint Social Work Education Conference that was held in July of this year. Uh, there was just so much material, so many good interviews, so many workshops, so many uh, interesting encounters and, and interviews that happened that it's taken a while to get it out, but I do assure you it's well worth waiting for. Now today I'm going to cover uh, interviews with three of the uh, workshop presenters at the conference. We're going to talk to uh, Juliet Kaprowska, we're going to talk to Sam Bieza, and we're going to talk to Jane McLenachan. All different subjects in social work, all diverse, all fascinating, and I commend them to you. Now, the first person we're going to hear is Juliet Kaprowska, who is a senior lecturer at the University of York in social work. And she gave a workshop considering the use of self revealed through the examination of real social work encounters. And I mean, the way that the self is communicated through words and nonverbal behavior and literally and figuratively carried by the social worker's body into shared spaces. And but Juliet can, can explain it far better than I can. So for the first interview, Juliet Kaprowska. Delighted to be joined by Juliet Kaprowska, who's the Senior Lecturer in Social Work at the University of York. Now, you uh, delivered a session, or delivered a session here, at the uh, JSWEP conference. Do you want to say just a little bit about what that session was about? Sure. Um, what it was, one of the themes of the conference is about the use of self. And so that really made me think about, well, what do we mean by the use of self in social work? It's a kind of taken-for-granted kind of a phrase. And what I wanted to do was explore aspects of who this self is that social, a social worker sort of becomes in order to be a social worker. To think about the influences of their personal backgrounds, the way that all of our selves are shaped, as are those of our clients and service users by our early experiences in life, our early experiences in relationship. But then they're also shaped by the immediate context in which encounters take place um, through a whole series of levels. So on the one hand they're shaped by are you meeting somebody in the home, are you meeting somebody because you're investigating something, are you meeting somebody in a purely supportive role but it's also shaped by other things like, what are my managers going to think about me when I get back and I tell them that I've done this or said this? Or how might this look in a court report? Um, how might this look if this became something in the media? So I'm really interested in the, the sort of interface between the social worker as a person and then the influences that uh, affect their behavior and their communication. Uh, when they're actually doing um, social work. Yeah. I mean, well, one thing I always do if I'm doing any training is I make sure that, from just as my perspective, but the, the two themes I want people to be absolutely aware of in social work 
to think about their assumptions and values. Mm -hmm. And in your case, you're focusing, in my opinion, on the values and the luggage that people bring with them mm -hmm. to the job from their own personal experiences. Is that fair? Uh, that's part of it, for part sure. Of it. Yeah. Well, in that's, history. Yes, I, mean, I think. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. think values is is right. Um, but I suppose some of, the, some of the concepts that I was drawing on in my presentation are also about the things that are much more unconscious even than values. They're just sort of assumptions that we make about the world, our ways of being, the things maybe that scare us that don't scare other people, um, the things that we're able to work with, our, our ability to be sensitive in some situations and not in others. So a, a, more also about the, not just what you might call social work values, or I'm sure that they are visible in the way that people conduct themselves, but also the, the things that um, yeah, people just take for granted about the nature of the world, that often get shocked actually by interactions with other people. So, I totally understand the theoretical side of what you're saying. Um, in terms of the practicalities of it, Drilling down to let people explore these values or these assumptions or, or, or the way that they're made up themselves, yeah. it's, it's quite a difficult and time-consuming exercise, I would have thought. Now, and therefore, in the social work landscape, in the day-to-day, -day, the hoi polloi, call it what you like, yeah. um, finding time to do what is an important task, I imagine, is, is our attention. Certainly, from ordinary supervision in the workplace, I would imagine. Sure. See, the, one of the things I did in the workshop that I ran was use um, excerpts from the Protecting Our Children series that was made in Bristol, yes. social services. Um, and that allows you to look in much more detail at the way that social workers actually embody what they're doing. And I think using those kinds of uh, materials is really valuable in training because it's not then just about thinking, it's not just about reflecting, it's also about observing and trying to understand some of the feelings that get evoked in you as an observer. Yeah. And I think that I'm a great believer in the value of, of thought, thoughtful observation of work and I think that's another thing that you know, on the hoof in everyday social work actually, social workers do work with other with colleagues and you can see how they're influenced by their colleagues. And I, th I think that's probably an underexplored area of day-to-day -day learning and change that happens. Learning for the good and sometimes probably learning for the not so yeah, good as no, well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I don't um, see it as a solitary thing actually, although obviously there is that element to it. Right. Understood. I do okay. understand that. I, I'm just thinking that sometimes the reality though, and I wonder how you feel about this, is that I mean, I feel, and I think a lot of people agree with me, that there's a distinct absence of reflective supervision right. within the working day, if you like, and it tends to just be operational caseloads, functionality, and that side of it. Yes. And even if the supervisor is capable of reflective supervision in its proper sense, it's a it's time problem in terms of delivering it. And that's one area, I would have thought, where some of the points you raised could have been explored. Yes. So, does that, would you agree, that sort of ties in in a way in terms of actually drilling down a bit into sort of delivering what you're talking about? Um, I, think, I think you're absolutely right that there are huge time pressures on people. And I think that 
we probably need to really look at that in more depth because I don't know that we even fully understand what reflection and reflective supervision are, even though there are books about it and all sorts of things. And you can you, you, more, yeah. you can you can see examples like even in those videos that I was you know saying I'd, I'd chosen excerpts mm. from. There's a lovely example of a social worker and her manager talking about how the work is affecting her and what it means to her. Um, what I question, I suppose, is whether by sacrificing that time, that, is, that tends to be the time that gets squeezed. We need to you know, check things, do things, make sure things are getting done. That is what a lot of people say. What is the cost of that in terms of what social workers actually do? You know, and I, I do sometimes wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, is do we save time there that actually has costs that are invisible as a, as a result through perhaps decisions that aren't made as thoughtfully or as carefully. I think you're making a very so, good point. Mm. I mean, I've heard extreme situations where, for example, paediatricians who take half a day a week for so-called reading yeah. actually say, I don't care even if a child dies when I'm, when I'm off reading. I mean, it might well help me save two children in the future. Now, that's an extreme situation. But on the other hand, in our world, in social work, when you look at reflective supervision, to my view, and mm -hmm. tell me if you're agreeing, okay. but to my view it's as if, um, if you can't have somebody who's your supervisor who you can have that total trust in, because you might be talking about some very difficult private things, mm -hmm. so you could be talking about bereavement, you could be talking about relationship problems, you could be talking divorce, you could be talking about or even your budgie dying or whatever it is that's affected you badly and you if your supervisor then sends you out to visit a family whose budgie has just died then I mean it makes it very tricky yes. for you to effectively function. Yes. Now in other Western industrialized countries in social work the opportunity is there that if you can't gel with your supervisor on that level even if you like them it might just be a gender issue mm -hmm. then you can choose somebody elsewhere and you can offset that against tax. Right. That's and I think that's a very good idea, but here we haven't really reached that level of sophistication and I just wonder what you thought about that. I certainly think having access to supervision is a requirement really of professional activity. I think hmm. everybody needs that in order to maintain themselves in kind of good shape yeah. to do their work um, and to help themselves you know, stay safe in the work that we do because people do get fatigued and burnt out and all, all, all sorts of things. Um, and supervision is a protection. I think that that isn't fully recognised in, in our current system. Yeah, and I didn't, I wasn't aware of, of that kind of uh, opportunity in Europe. It's just another option. Yes. I mean, in this country, we'll probably have to go in stages, but never mind. I mean, it may well be that even to get to swapping supervisors for certain functions might well become good. But I, I haven't seen much evidence of that, but I mean, just, just to openly and transparently recognise that yeah. other people can be more helpful in certain things with you. But I think there's that, but I also think that there's, there's also a system issue about trying to enable um, people who are in a role where they are supervising to actually be, uh, be free to do that and to do it as well as they can. Because, of course, very often those people are also under enormous time pressures and they're feeling very rushed and pressured and they've got so many things to think about. And they probably and, don't get any supervision themselves. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's, I, I suppose I often have a tendency to think, yes, there are these interpersonal issues that are important, 
but there's also something about um, not just seeing it as personal, because quite often there's more to it than just whether those two people get on or whatever. Back to just briefly before we go on to something else, I mean, the sense of self, the, the issue that you kind of was pivotal, if you like, to, to your session. Yeah. Did you feel that people tuned in quite quickly to what you were talking about? Yes. Yeah, which is good. Yes, you know, yes, I did. Yes. I did. Yeah. I did. And also, my experience of using um, live examples from practice is that people uh, have loads to say about that. And, and they really like to do that. So then if you ask people to talk about it, they, it's then trying to stop them. The so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe at this point I should say you're a published author. Yes. What, would you like to say what your book title was and what people should look out for? Let's start um, with that. It's called Communication and Interpersonal Skills in Social Work. And it's now published by Sage. New edition out this year. Been updated, been um, expanded. So I used to have a chapter that was on families and groups, and groups got a fairly raw deal. I actually think we don't use groups nearly enough in social work, so I, wrote a, I rewrote those chapters in, into two. And so there's one on, just on family work and one on group work. So that's probably the major change in the book this time. Okay, well, look, that, that's okay. I hope people heard that. Okay. But now on the general JSWEC experience, I mean, is this your first conference, or have you been coming for some considerable time? Or? I've come to JSWEC probably on and off uh, since it began, I think. Right. Um, but I haven't been here for a couple of years. Um, and I think it's been a really good conference so far. Okay. Um, good balance? Good balance of what? Subjects, opportunities. Um, there's a huge, there's a huge program. There's a huge program, yeah. That makes it quite nice. It's quite nice to be in a position where there's more than one thing you actually want to go and do uh, for, for the sessions. Uh, the keynotes have been really good. I think the, the one this morning um, was really outstanding uh, with, with Bruce Featherstone and uh, Kay Morris. Very, yeah, very interesting. And Harry's was really interesting yesterday, Harry Ferguson. Um, but I think, yes, been, there's, there's a big range, and there's, what I like about it is there are people who are very experienced, very knowledgeable, uh, with work that's very well developed, and there are also people who are bringing things that are quite raw and quite fresh. There are people talking about their PhDs, which they've barely begun to digest. And, you know, and that means, in some ways, some of, the, some of the presentations aren't as polished, but they're also, I think it's a really good place for people to bring that and have the discussion and, and begin to have an audience for their work. It's been very friendly. The venue is actually very, very good. Um, okay, final point. Okay. I have been asking all the guests on here because I mean, you're all influential in your own way in terms of whether it's you know at your place of work or wherever, but generally, messages for today's social workers. You know, I mean, by me, if we don't live in a challenging world, you know, but. What message would you like to give out to people, either considering social work or going through the learning process at the moment? I think that the most people come into social work because they really care about people and they want to make people's lives better. Some people choose a more kind of interpersonal psychological route, some people choose a more sociological and political route. Um, but they really want to change things. 
And I think my message is very simple, which is don't lose that vision. Despite the fact that social work at times seems to be uh, sidelined or or sort of compressed in some way that makes it very difficult for people to do what they believe in. Actually, it's us who need to keep carrying on believing it and doing the best job we can. And times change, um, and it won't always be as, as tough as it is right now. Julia, thank you very much indeed for being on the programme. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. Now, secondly, we've got Sam Baeza. Now, Sam's workshop was fascinatingly entitled Swimming with Sharks. What do social workers experience when conducting assessments of families where sexual abuse is the primary factor? And so he was looking at the current practice of practitioners when working with families where sexual abuse is the current concern. And uh, it was a fascinating workshop and I commend it to you. So here's Sam. Well, I'm with Samuel, Sam Baeza, who's a senior lecturer in social work, but he's also got a heck of a lot of experience under his belt. Now, he's registered with the HCPC College of Social Work, but he's also affiliated quite closely with NOTA, which is the, the National Organization for the Treatment of Abusers. Mm -hmm. And he, is, uh, he worked with Lucy, the Lucy Faithful Foundation, and he also worked as a, in the risk assessment team at West Sussex, and he continues to do individual assessments on demand of sex offenders. Welcome, Sam. Oh, welcome. Now, the title of your session today was Swimming with Sharks, Social Workers' Experience When Conducting Assessments of Families Where Sexual Abuse is a Primary Factor. Mm -hmm. So, if you could just explain a little bit, A, how you came to that conclusion that this would be a good session to give, and what were the, sort of the drivers from your own experience that uh, thought that this would be something that would be worth sharing with the conference. Okay, actually the, <clears throat> before before I tell you about that, what's interesting is looking at the title. Okay. And the titles, although it's it's you know it's a catchy one, swimming, with, swimming sharks. with sharks. Yeah. And, and and that's that's the bit about for me that people feel that working in a sexual with sex offenders is like swimming with sharks as opposed with swimming with dolphins, which would be a nice oh, thing, see. wouldn't it? Um, and what I wanted, what I wanted to do, well, what I wanted to do throughout my professional career is to explode some of those myths that that actually um, sex offenders are not monsters. They're people like you and I that do some monstrous things, um, and that's that's the big difference for me. But um, you know, I've been working in the field of, of child protection forever, really. I mean, I'm 53 now. I started work with in sort of social work type field when I was about 24 I did a psychology degree first then I did a forensic psychology degree and, and it's how adults harm children is what's always interested me um, and within that field what really sort of grabbed me was how is it that an adult male can sexually abuse a child that, 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 that was the question that I wanted to answer. And then allied to that is that not only do you need to, to, to get an answer to that if you can, but you need to, you need to manage that. Because um, it, at least in England, if, 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 we, if, if, we, if we find people doing abusing children, what will happen to them generally 
if it's very gross abuse, they may go to prison, but they'll come out again. And very often they'll come out again without any work being done to them, and they'll come out and abuse again sometimes. And, and my, my, my driver in all of this is I want to prevent that from happening, as well as understanding how it is that they get to do it and why do they do it. Now, the reason why I think I chose to talk about how social workers feel about doing an assessment here is because that's one of the things that I felt it's always been not talked about. How is it that social workers feel when working with this type of men? Um, and the, the truth of it is, is that um, you, you know we hear in the in, in the press about offenders, but the ones that we hear about are like the Rolf Harris, the Jimmy Savile, all of those big names who are horrendous men. But actually, they, 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 they're just a very, very small minority of offenders. Most offences happen within a family situation. Older brother with, with children, fathers, mothers to, to a lesser extent. And that's where social workers work. They don't work with the Jimmy Savills, they don't work with the Wolf Harris. They work in a family where Mr Jones has abused his children. And they then have to make an assessment is it safe for those children? And if it isn't, what can it be done? And if it is, why do they think it is? And my, my, whole, my whole point about doing this here is that I have an idea of, of how you do those assessments. I've been doing those kind of assessments for years. But very few people have asked the question of how does it feel to be a social worker and faced with that situation? What is it that you do? And if you do that, why do you do that? And how does it feel to be in there? So to be talking to Mr. Jones, who, is, who you know has abused Johnny, who is seven, or you know, Betty, who is four. How, how, do, you, how do you do the work? Let's, let me split that a little bit and actually say, would you be suggesting one of two things? That the current workforce needs better training in, in this subject, in terms of assessment of this, or we really should be looking to creating more specialists. Well, <clears throat> actually, that, there, there's two, there's two, there's a number of parts to your question. Now, do do social workers um, need training? Um, that was the first part. That, in this subject. In this subject. More training in this subject. <clears throat> There's very little training Fine. in this well, subject. I do remember from your session you mentioning there's, that. There's yeah. very, very little training. Um, and, it's, and there's less and less because uh, you know, local authorities are being faced with trying to save money. And one of the first things that goes in a local authority is training. Training is expensive, so they do away with that. When they do that, what they then do is they then start to try to employ experts. But then the second tranche of savings come. And the experts are quite expensive. I'm actually very expensive. To, to do an assessment using me is an expensive business because it's, you, you know, it takes an awful lot of work. Now, I think my other driver is that actually I would be happy if I didn't have to do that work, if social workers did that work. But it, it comes back to what I said to you that <clears throat> in that session that, social, that sexual abuse has a mystique all of its own that people feel that it's different. And 
there is a fear among social workers about working with sexual abuse. Sometimes it, it almost feels like that if you work with these people, you might, you, you might catch whatever it is that they do. And, and what happens, for example, I mean, the, the, the question that's never asked of, say, police officers. Now, if, if a police officer, if, if somebody's caught having photographs of children, pornographic or abusive photographs, what the police has to do, is they, the police officers, is they have to look at each and every one of those photographs. Now you then have to think that a, a sexual photograph is taken to elicit a behavioural response. What happens to those police officers or social workers when one of those pictures produces, which it will do, an arousal? Does that then mean that because you've aroused to those pictures, are you an offender? There's all those all sorts of really horrible questions that people ask. So they leave that aside. They don't, they, they don't want to work with that. Um, and my, I think that what you need is you need two, a two-pronged sort of approach. You need specialists, but you need those specialists to be working with social workers because it's they that will see these people. I see... You know, I'll do two, two or three assessments a month, but how many children are being abused a month? Hundreds. I don't get to see those. Social workers do, and they need to know what it is that they're doing. If they're lucky. Well, yes, and, and, and as you and I know, that sexual abuse is very often not, not disclosed. You know, the most heart-rendering thing is when talking to um, adults, you know, thinking of talking to a 60-year-old woman whose son was an offender. Um, and she starts to tell me about her experiences of abuse that she'd never told anybody before. And she wasn't telling me because I'm, I'm special. She was telling me because nobody had asked before. Um, and it's, it's, it's those, those issues that, that social workers get faced with. And they need, we need to have an understanding. What does it feel like? So we need to, actually, you need to drill down, is what you're saying, into yes. the whole social work experience to actually, um, I, I'm guessing, that you judge that they would need more help and more support and more training. I think so. Yeah. And what's happening now is that we're being used less and less. And instead of using experts, they're not using anybody. So children are being left at risk. There are, of course, I mean, I am myself a trustee of a, a sexual abuse uh, charity that uh, offers psychotherapeutic counselling to victims of abuse, uniquely men, women and children. And just for the record, that's the greenhouse which I've talked about before. But generally speaking, I take your point that the, the, the numbers far outweigh the helpers. Um, but other matters like the, 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 the recent publicity that the, the men you mentioned, the Jimmy Savills, the Rolf Harris's, the Uncle Tom Cobbleys bring, I know they constitute a very small percentage of all the sexual abuse that goes on. We all know that this, within the family or the extended family that it happens mostly. However, I wonder what your thoughts are because for example, you may remember Jonathan King, yeah. <clears throat> who went to prison for three years. And when he came out, it was almost like somebody coming out of the Big Brother house, waving his new CD around and the press lapped him up and so forth. Now, to my view, that brought a very important point home. And I wondered what you thought of that, which was, if you were a potential abuser looking at that, and you hadn't crossed the line yet, the very fact of the way that that was perceived in the media gave a certain intellectual validation almost to the behaviour and allowed several people, I think, to cross the line. 
Now, okay. therefore, the, the power of the media, now whether it's something terrible like Jimmy Savile, something huge like Jimmy Savile, or something startling like Rolf Harris, or something absolutely bestial like Ian Watkins, or mm. whatever, we've got ourselves a panoply of abusers within the field. And I remember, you must do too, at the time that um, um, Gary Glitter yeah. was convicted, they still played his music all yeah. over the place. And people said, I don't care, I love his music, I don't care what he did. The same, um, the American... Jackson. Jackson Michael Jackson. Michael yeah. Jackson I know he wasn't convicted, but at, at the debate beforehand, they said, we don't care if he is convicted, we love his music. So there's a whole mixture of public kind of perceptions but of even, this. But even, even different to that, I'll tell you another story mm. of, of um, an eminent, an eminent neonatalist, one of the best in the field in, in, in the whole of England, certainly one in the world. Now that man abuses his, abuses his daughter. Now what then happens is, um, that chap um, goes to prison f f for a while, comes back, he can't, he can't practice as a neonatalist. Now, how do we feel about that this guy did do what he did and that what he did was monstrous, but we're then putting hundreds of neonates at risk because he can't, he can't um, practice. Should we, should we say, he can't, you know, he's, he's crossed the line, he's abused, therefore he loses everything. Or should we be saying, let's look at how, and this is the whole thing about the good life um, um, sort of way of treating offenders, that you look at people and you, you say to them, look, what you want to do is to lead a good life. How can we make that happen? And a good life involves not ever abusing. However, that does not, that does not work with Jimmy Savile does not work with Gary Glitter, and it doesn't with Ralph Harris. But it, it's, it's, it's it's so difficult. I mean, come on, you worked for Lucy Faithful Foundation for some time, and you worked with offenders trying to actually understand the whole psychopathology of it or whatever. I, I, I would put to you, and I, I hope you agree, but whatever, mm -hmm. that the nearest thing we can get to their behaviour is it is a sort of a, an, an addiction almost. And if you're talking about an addiction, you're talking about something where Self-control in this instance isn't enough because it's not substance abuse, it's not alcohol, it's not gambling, it's whatever, where you're the victim. You're talking about someone where there's an external victim as well, so you need social controls as well as self-control. I entirely agree with you. The, 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 you know, sex offending can't be cured, mm. but it can be controlled. Yes. But it's how you control it, and it's how... It's, it's this thing about swimming with sharks. You know, these are not monsters, but they do monstrous things and, and it's trying to separate that behavior from that person because what we do is, is Jimmy Savile he's been written out of history five years from now children won't know that a Jimmy Savile existed and we won't learn from that history will be repeated we can't do that Jimmy Savile was a monstrous yeah he was a pretty monstrous man who did some monstrous things but we have to keep them alive and learn from what they do so that we don't make the mistakes again. And particularly in this case too, the whole social work learning experience is very yeah. close to your heart. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And what those high profile cases do is that they allow hundreds of victims that didn't feel able to tell their stories yeah. to actually tell us. Okay Sam, a final word just for half a minute if you would. 
a message to social workers across the country, whether it's educators or practitioners or whatever, on this subject? What, what should they do, having listened to you? We need to understand that social workers need to be given the tools to be able to do their work properly, and that's not what we're doing. Education, social work education, needs to include that as the basis of the work. That's what I think. Uh, and we need to understand what it is that social workers feel about doing that work to make that meaningful for them. Sam, pleasure to talk to you. Thank, Thank you. you very much indeed. Cheers. Okay, that was Sam. Now the third interview we're going to have today is with Jane McLenaghan. And Jane's workshop was on child safeguarding and domestic abuse, public perceptions of thresholds for intervention, which is a crucial issue at the moment within frontline social work. And she was looking at the findings from research that was commissioned for a child safeguarding and domestic violence project which explored public perceptions of acceptable parenting behaviours, inverted commas acceptable, and thresholds for intervention. So, in telling us about the Child Safeguarding and Domestic Violence Project, it's Jane McLenaghan, who's the Head of Social Work and Health at De Montfort University. So here's Jane. You're welcome. Now, I've got Jane McLenaghan with me today, who gave a session yesterday on uh, Child Safeguarding and Domestic Abuse, Public Perceptions of Thresholds for Intervention. Now, Jane herself is the Head of Social Work and Health Studies at De Montfort University. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. Now, why don't you just start, if you could, by telling us just a little bit about your session, what, what, why you pulled that one together particularly, what, you know, how it went, uh, what sort of things you, you covered, and then we'll just take it from there, if that's all right. Okay, yes. Well, the, the session was based on uh, a piece of work that we've been in, involved involved with at De Montfort. Um, that's a project that's been in collaboration between the university, the local NHS, police and children's social care. And it's designed to be trying to understand what it is that members of the public get concerned about in relation to child safeguarding issues and domestic abuse situations. So we've been thinking about the fact that literature focuses on professional views of thresholds for concern and, and intervention, but we've, we felt that there was very little focus on what does the public think as a matter, might be a matter of concern. And when we were looking at some of the serious case reviews, so for example more recently in England, things like the Daniel Pelka serious case review, Hamza Khan, a big focus there on the public's role, the community's role, people in the community having a sense or, or knowing that there were issues of concern in relation to the, the children's welfare and care. And that sense that people can often afterwards be saying things like, we, we knew, we knew that something wasn't right. We had a sense of unease about what was happening or we, we saw things happening with that child and to that child. So what we're interested in doing is trying to understand what it is that 
within a community, members of the public might see and hear that would cause them to be concerned. And then when they have identified a concern, what do they do about it? And what stops them doing something about it? And what happens when they have tried to yeah. do something about it? So you're really drilling down into this, aren't you? Yes, okay. yes. I mean, it's also sounding a, a bit like the confidential doctor system in Holland a little bit as well with the reporting of the communities. Well, it's interesting actually because we've done, we've done four focus groups in, with a very kind of diverse uh, participant group across the, the four focus groups in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, that, that sort of thing. And what's come out quite consistently from the focus groups is, firstly, that there's no consensus. That's probably no surprise. No consensus about what is a matter of concern. So reactions to scenarios that we've used in the focus group have ranged from people saying that situation wouldn't be a concern at all for me through to people saying that's a really top-level concern. But, uh, but one of the other key messages that's come out of the focus groups to date is a sense of needing an in-between in the professional context. Very negative views about the professions involved in safeguarding and domestic abuse situations. Descriptions of, for example, the police just charging like bulldogs. Um, quite negative perceptions of children's social care. So as a social worker myself, with my own background in, in child protection, some of the focus groups weren't a particularly comfortable place to be in terms of public perceptions of social care. So the, the views that social care is only for the really hardened top-level concerns, the, the kind of myths and stereotypes that exist about being judged, that you'll be judged. Yeah. Fear of reprisals if you did report something. Um, views, contradictory views, that on the one hand, social workers just take too many children into care away from their families, but on the other hand, they're not taking enough children into care. So, uh, so one of the things that's been evident is that a lot of the very negative views about social work, and particularly children's social work, that are perpetuated in the media are soaked up by the public. And that seems to be a real barrier to engaging, coming forward and saying, I've got these concerns. So what the... What one of the lessons from the focus groups so far has been what would be really helpful would be some, some way, some place, some person that we could go to, we could get in contact with and just say, I'm feeling a bit uneasy about this, I've seen this, I've heard this, do you think I should be concerned? Do you think this is something that sh something should sure. be done about? Yeah. And what they're saying is that they don't feel that they can do that with the police or with right. social media. So it's, it's the kind of community equivalent of the designated person within other professions, if yeah. you like. Yeah. Somebody they yeah. know who's in yeah. the community. That and we've had examples. We had we've had some interesting examples yeah. of how um, people like a, a family support worker in a school 
has actually carried out that role and we've had descriptions from some of the participants in the focus groups of going to the school family support worker with exactly these kinds of concerns, feeling that they weren't judged, feeling that they were listened to. Somebody took seriously their sense of unease about what was going on in a particular family and what might be happening to a particular child or woman in a domestic abuse situation and then having the confidence that that person would know what to do about it. Okay. A couple of quick things and then a final question. Mandatory reporting has been in the headlines recently. Um, What's your view on that? Well, I think that some of the things that's emerging from the conversations that we've been having with people in these focus groups is that I don't think they would do it. I don't think the public would do it just because it was mandatory. Um, We had people recognising that there are lots of children out there being abused out in the communities and the public isn't picking up on it and responding to it and I think that one of the one of the concerns that that's been apparent in the focus groups is is this lack of clarity about what constitutes a concern so it's the the education for the public, and that's what we're hoping to do as a follow-on from this project, develop some publicity materials um, based on some of the scenarios and the responses that we've had from the scenarios, because people don't know, as professionals, the, the professionals are not consistent about what constitutes an issue of concern sometimes, so it's no surprise that the public doesn't instantly know if they see or hear something that that does constitute a safeguarding issue. And tell us where we can look out for this next step. Well, we've... Addresses or anything you want to give? Yeah, well, certainly at um, myself and my colleague, Josie Solomon, at De Montfort University, will be doing some further work on this. And we're planning to, to, to do some more in terms of writing up the findings. Um, local across... Um, Nottinghamshire is, is mainly where we've been, been doing this work and certainly the local um, NHS, Children's Social Care are very keen on taking it forward in terms of publicity materials that we can disseminate okay. to the public. I just wanted to that anybody listening knows where to look when it, it comes. A final question, mm. alright? And I, I usually ask most of the guests this. You've got a group of social workers in front of you and there might also be one or two people thinking about do they want to train to be a social worker what would be your message to them at this time well I think um, my key message is that social work is it presents people with an opportunity to despite some of the media coverage actually to make a difference for the for the the better in people's lives. What we don't hear in in a a children's safeguarding context is we don't hear the messages about the families that have been helped to stay together precisely because of positive and constructive and supportive intervention by social workers. So if you are, if you do have a commitment to social justice, if you do have a commitment to making our society a better, fairer, equal um, safer place, 
then actually social work is a, is a way in which you can do that. Okay. Delightful talking to you, Jane. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, there we are. Three brilliant workshops and I hope you found the interviews enjoyable. As always, my thanks to Alba Digital Media for helping the technical side of this podcast. And you can download it from iTunes. You can let me know um, on Twitter, at Dave Niven. You can use SpeakPipe, which is the one-click service beside each podcast or blog, to give me a verbal piece of feedback about what you thought about the edition or what you'd like to hear in the future. So, like I said, iTunes, Stitcher, Podfeed, you name it, on the website, socialworldpodcast.com. And that was the fifth of our special Joint Social Work Education Conference uh, podcasts. There'll be a regular podcast out very soon. Thanks very much for listening.